Here's Johnny. I'll be back. And you will know my name is the Lord. I'm walking here. I'm walking here. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Box Office Pulp, your one podcast stop for movies, madness, moxie, occasionally mummies, and tonight, mothers. Well, specifically one mother, uh, specifically Darren Aronofsky's 2017 drama, mystery, horror thing, mother. I'm your host, Cody, and joining me today are my usual co-host, Mike. Say hello, Mike. Uh, please get off the counter, it's not braced. And Jamie. Say hello, I'm a Jamie. metaphor. <laughs> we knew it the whole time. And... We're lucky enough today to be joined by special guest host, Adam Avitable. Hello. I'm glad to be here. Thank you very much for joining us. You might recognize Adam from the podcast Dating Kind of Sucks, uh, which is not a description of your normal life. It's an actual show you can go and listen to, to remind you of the fact that dating does indeed kind of suck. Absolutely. That's right. Anyways, what do you say about a movie like Mother? I think calling it a thing is probably one of the best things you could have said. Like that, <laughs> that, when when you said that, exactly, that's exactly what popped into my head too. It is. It's a thing. Um, it's the it's, movie it's, version of a whatchamacallit. It's, it's polarizing. <laughs> People love it or hate it. I think. I don't think you feel. I don't think anybody feels ambivalent about it. They either like we're like really intrigued or despise it. I had to look it up on Rotten Tomatoes just because it's it's a morbid curiosity to see what the, those numbers are. And the tomato meter is surprisingly kind. It's uh, uh, great for this. 69% positive. Nice. Hmm. Uh, the audience score is also surprisingly high. It's a 50%, which okay. is amazing because I feel like if I were to guess, if someone walked me out of the movie theater uh, as soon as I saw it and told me to predict what audience scores for this movie would have been, I would have guessed like a negative three. <laughs> yeah, when when I, I saw it in a, in a full theater, and I when I walked out, I felt like I was the only person who loved that movie. Like I, 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 I feel like everybody else walked out just being like, "What did I just watch?" And I walked out going, "Oh my god, that was amazing!" So, was, yeah, yeah, a, a very similar experience to mine. Uh, my theater has as a bar, which is the greatest thing in the world to me. So I was kind of buzzed going into the movie, <laughs> and this this couple sat next to me. Uh, mid fifties, you know, and apparently they didn't have a clue what the movie was. They, they just went on a movie date each week and this was the thing they picked. It was Friday night. They're going to sit down and watch the new Jennifer Lawrence movie. So they, they turned to me and they asked, what is this movie? And I went, I don't know because I had seen the trailers, but I couldn't explain a plot from what I had seen. I had no idea, like even what genre it was. Uh, I told them I thought it might be kind of like a, a horror movie or kind of like a thriller just off the vibes and early reviews. And the woman immediately was unhappy because she just did not like horror movies. And boy, the film did not change her opinion from there on out. It, <laughs> it was, it was two hours of her sitting next to her husband, just loudly whispering. What the fuck is this? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I feel like I, I love when, when people do that, like they, like they choose a movie, they go every week. That's so sweet. But I, I always feel funny way when i've been in like a bunch of movies where i've seen like this old couple that comes in and sits down and i know what type of movie i'm gonna be watching <laughs> and I, I and i'm always surprised when they stay to the end and this was one of those where first of all if you don't know who darren aronofsky is and you're going to see his movie based on <laughs> the fact that jennifer lawrence is in it well you know you're going you're going for the wrong reason 
I had that feeling in my gut, and it was amazing walking out of the theater because, again, I had your reaction. I'm like, oh, that was fantastic. I, I'm so glad I got to see that guy swinging for the fences. And I could hear that poor woman and her husband walking behind me just, oh, boy. Like, if they could have been playing the sad Charlie Brown music as they walked away, <laughs> that's when it would have happened. They're actually divorced now. It's true. That relationship is over. That's a, it's, a, it's a movie that I feel like everybody should watch just once. Just so, like <laughs> it's I an experience, like, yeah. Because out of Aronofsky's films, like I feel like this this maybe might be might be the most uh, self reflective one, and might be the least offensive one to people's taste. It, it, you know, the baby parting, you know, excluded. But like even even with that, like the Requiem for a Dream, I feel like uh, really people, some people watch it and just have such a guttural reaction to it. But I, I don't know. I, I'm desensitized to that type of shit anyways. <laughs> Did your guys' theaters uh, happen to put up warning signs about the baby scene? Uh, I saw an opening day, so there was no warning signs, but I could see them doing that later. Although that was less disturbing than the Jennifer Lawrence beating scene. That I felt like that that was a much more disturbing scene than the baby. Like the baby, it's like, you know, who it's over pretty fast. It's mostly like a Foley effect. Like you hear the neck snapping, but the baby itself isn't like ripped to pieces right in front of you. And it looks yeah, so they, much they, like they, a puppet. So, yeah. And it's, oh yeah, it's cut. It, the way they edit it and the, when they're eating, like you, you just, they're not trying to make it. He, he stepped away a little bit. Just, he didn't, he didn't, you know, pull in on the, on the, on that scene in the way that would have made it really disturbing. Um, like he did for when she gets beaten. Like that's the scene that I, to me, uh, uh watching it again, when I watched it today again, um, like is, is disturbing. Like is a point that they should have, that's, that deserves a warning because that felt, that felt real. The baby yeah. feels fake. That's what I love about this movie. It's such a Rorschach test. Like, what part disturbs you the most? (laughs) (laughs) It's only one or the other. Are you disturbed by dead babies or beaten women? Those are your choices. But no, my theater actually, like, after opening weekend, they started putting up signs on the theater warning there was, like, a very graphic scene around two-thirds of the way through just to let people know something was coming, but not what. And uh, (laughs) one of the girls behind the counter, I could hear her when she was selling tickets, if anyone was buying tickets for Mother, she was warning them, like, oh, there's a scene with a dead baby. If that's going to disturb you, please don't watch this movie. <laughs> like, <laughs> apparently she had gone to see it, and it freaked her out so much she was warning customers. Wow. I love what a Howard Castle move that is when you think about it. <laughs> I would, Aronofsky, if he just made a recording of himself, and they put, like, that TV in the middle of every movie theater lobby, just warning people away. And here we have the coward's corner for people who don't like dead babies. <laughs> He's I demand with that the level of showmanship for my films. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, it, well, it's, it's funny because I feel like with with a lot of movies and a lot of things in life, people have uh, trigger warnings and then they want a warning of, of of content. And I think sometimes, especially if you're experiencing an artist's uh, piece, whatever it might be, you you maybe owe it to them if you're going to experience it at all, just to experience it raw and try to make it through it because you walk away a little bit different than if you go in with like this protection around you, this, this, you know, this umbrella of a warning or, or, you know, you know, when to close your eyes, I feel like you're, you're not doing the artist the right service anyways. Definitely. Well, it puts you on edge for the whole movie, you know, Oh, a thing is coming, but they told me it wasn't until two thirds of the way through. So you, you kind of, I think let a lot of things pass if you're waiting for that big disturbing moment. Yeah. It's like, it's like knowing that the Shyamalan movies have a twist. You're just, you're sitting there just waiting for it, you know? <laughs> Right. And it ruins half the movie. If you don't know if there's a twist or care, then you're going to enjoy something a little better. Unless yeah, it's I, uh, that one about talking plants, which was just, or the killing plants, which just shit uh, away, eat away. The happening, boy. Yes. That was, uh, doesn't anyone care about the bees? 
which I mean ties into this as well, since uh, apparently, according to Aronofsky, this is all about the environment. That was interesting. Like before the movie came out, it felt like he wasn't going to say much about the movie, and then after the first week or two, when he was still on the road promoting it, I, I think he loosened up a little bit and he started saying stuff like that. Oh, it's it's allegory about the environment, which definitely sure I could see that Mother Nature. But it it almost feels like you could easily take this in 10 different directions, too. Like, there's enough stuff happening with all the biblical allegories that you don't necessarily even have to believe it's just about the environment. Uh, A lot of people kind of take the path that this is a movie about the creative process and how it can be kind of destructive, feeding darker impulses of egomaniacs. You know, if you're all about control, if you're the creator, you can do a lot of things that hurt everyone else around you and suck them dry for your own benefit. And that's what I walked away with it, and that which is actually why I loved it, because in, in a small sense, I, I saw it as being, uh, it was very reflective for me, it resonated for me as someone who, um, I'm, an, I'm an author, I've, you know, I've got a novel out there, I've also been creating content for an, an audience for many years, I do stand-up comedy, I've done a lot of original content on, uh, on, my, on my own website, and it's always been something where... Uh, I've always felt that they, they, my, as my fan base grew, because to, to, for, for a while I had some mild celebrity on the internet. I went viral like three or four times, and like my website used to get you know a half million hits a month. It was pretty pretty big before I kind of tried to scale down. Yeah, it was like I, I actually had a minor celebrity. When I would go to certain conferences, I wouldn't be able to walk through the room because everybody knew who I was. <laughs> um, here, here in Orlando, I was well-known um, because I'd been on TV and everything as well. So like it, 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 it's a minor level of celebrity, but it, I, to me, watching this movie – it felt like this is what it's like when you're a creative person who has a fan base because the Jennifer Lawrence's character was, is almost in, in my, in my opinion was the muse is, is the muse that you have. And, and I've had, I've actually had girlfriends who were like that. They were, they were amused to me. They were someone who I drew all my inspiration from, but I basically took from them and then gave to my audience and provided all everything that they gave to me. I just funneled into the creative process and then parsed it out to an audience, and the audience took as much as they could and continued to take. And then eventually the girlfriend would leave because they never got it reciprocated in the same way because they were always sharing me with the audience. And so then there was always a new girlfriend around to be the next muse. And it was just, you know, the next day, you know, there once once one left, there was a brand new one that would be be there and be be great for me. So it resonated with me quite a bit in, in a bad way, like in a sense that I was like, oh, shit, yeah, I've done that. Like, that's like I could I really feel Javier Bardem's character. Like, I really feel like a, like a parallel to him. And, and I see how destructive and terrible it can be. So a couple follow up questions on that one to get to that level of celebrities. How many goats do you have to sacrifice? Uh, you know, it was no goats. It was more just the the hookers buried in the backyard. Oh, okay. Um, Why well, should you get enough? You get enough of those, and it's it's you know it's easy. It's pretty That's, pretty simple. I got to get a yeah. backyard. I got to stop renting. That's my yeah point. yeah. See there there, there you go. <laughs> uh, the garbage disposal just ain't doing it. Okay. No 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 bones don't go well in garbage disposal. Don't you know? Come on. That's what I want everyone to take away from this episode. <laughs> but that is kind of the fascinating part about it, too, just that that cyclical ending. As soon as it ends, it kind of starts over again, but there's a small tweak there. But you can tell it's just going to be the same cycle over and over. Well, because when it starts, that's not Jennifer Lawrence in the beginning either. That's a different woman in the beginning who's mm-hmm. on fire. And then you just you just see her just for a second. You see her face right. and then and then, you know, it goes away. So, like, yeah, when we get to see three cycles of it, basically. Oh, I never noticed that. 
Yeah, and, uh, and at the very end, it's it's a different woman. It's not Jennifer Lawrence, if I'm not mistaken. Right. Yeah. So each time, it's a different. Yeah. So you and but you don't necessarily like. It's funny. I remember when I first saw it, I didn't realize that the first woman wasn't Jennifer Lawrence. But watching it today, when they show the woman for a flash before it, like it all turns white and then she wakes up, and I was like, oh, that's not her. And then of course, at the end, it's a different woman that woke up. But I I expected that. I think anybody who was paying attention to the movie expected when the when the girl turned over, rolled over at the end of the. Uh, movie was not going to be Jennifer Lawrence. Like, I don't think anybody expected it to be her. Yeah. I, I don't know. Cause it felt like her story, like he basically he consumed her with his creative process. So that to me, like I said, that, which I like about this movie is it can be interpreted that way. Even if that's not what Aronofsky necessarily intended, mm-hmm. that this is all about the creative process. It's all about, you know, just feeding your, your audience and how your audience will literally rip your, like your child from your arms and eat it. <laughs> In a, in, a, in in this and, and assume that you deserve that they deserve they deserve that from you and they will take parts of your life and your home because they assume that they deserve it and they'll turn on anybody who tries to stop them even if they're part of part of who you are and, and I, I, I to stay topical with it too because everyone loves a podcast that dates itself immediately uh, I think you can see little examples of that all the time with Twitter following groups like all the shit with Elon Musk anytime he says anything now there will be a certain group that will defend anything he says. Yes. I feel like there's a certain worship that goes into celebrity. You will have groupies that will die for you without really knowing you. They, 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 they know the idea of you and they enjoy a piece of what you've created and that's enough for them to identify with and that becomes a part of them. And it's a little frightening. Oh, absolutely. Um, when I, when I, the, what, what got me into the, like the, like I said, this mild Z level internet fame was blogging. I was a blogger and I was, um, a blogger with majority of my, um, readers being women and i would go to blogging conferences and i would speak at conferences and i would i would you know i did this all the time i would blog i blogged every day um for you know seven days a week for for years my you know my old blog before i finally archived said fuck it and archived it all had uh you know <laughs> 3500 posts on it it was and Shit. um yeah it was substantial but that is impressive work sir i can it, barely bring myself to get out of bed every day of the week let it, alone like to do a process <laughs> like that it was all about creating for me. Like it was all about, and now I've put that energy into writing, writing novels and books. Um, but, but that's, that's where it kind of, it started. And what I did find for myself and other, and for other bloggers was that your audience would, they expected because they're sitting here reading about your personal life that they, they were owed all of the details of your life. And if there was anything that I decided I didn't want to share with someone, like for example, when I got divorced years ago because I had an affair with another blogger, it was a big thing. Um, it went crazy on the internet, like, you know, the little internet blogging gossip sites, you know, ate it up, but they all demanded explanations, like literally like verbatim. We demand an explanation. You owe us an answer to why, why, why yeah, this is happening. Like the, mo- and, the time you probably want the most privacy in your life is the time when everyone's after you for it. Right. And then, and we chose not to talk about it and it drove people crazy. Like they, they thought that they had the right to an explanation. So I really, the, like when people just start tearing shit off the walls and are just like, and are like one corner is worshiping and one corner is worshiping a different way. And they're both fighting amongst each other on which way is the better way to do it. Like I absolutely could, could, I felt that. Like I was like that, that feels so it's such a good depiction of what fan bases are like because fan bases as a whole are pretty ridiculously awful people. <laughs> yeah. And boy, I mean, the movie didn't come out that long ago, but because time apparently decided it's going to move in weird lurches uh, <laughs> nowadays, it seems so prescient. Like he was a wise man before his time, even in 2017. Yeah. 
it, like in my mind now, it's it's embarrassing to be a Star Wars fan because the fandom's so toxic. Well, exactly. Like that's anyone who's a rabid fan of something. It, not anyone, because because I would say that there are things I'm a rabid fan of, but I also appreciate the changes. Like the Star Wars is such a great example. People get get so angry and they attack fucking actors and actresses for for like things that have that are beyond their control. It's it's it really is toxic. It, yeah, it it blows my mind, and that's almost the scariest part of the movie. I it, I hesitate to call the film horror, but it definitely feels like it, it's disturbing. But I don't know what to call this if we can circle back to that idea. A thing. Thing. Thing is really the best. I, it's hilarious. I went on IMDb just because I was very curious what they would call it. And they have it listed as a drama horror mystery. <laughs> I'm not sure mystery quite works. I mystery mean, doesn't mystery really. Us. I, no. <laughs> yeah. and what I mean, are all it, these people's names? I have to know. <laughs> that's right. What was that rock? Uh, <laughs> so they need a genre for claustrophobic mindfuck that should be the genre i think speaking of which i wonder what the exterminating angels falls under because that movie seems like it'd make a great double feature with this i don't know if you guys have ever seen it. it's on it's it's like in the criterion collection so if you have like film struck you can go see it it's it's a french absurdist movie from like the i want to say 60s i might have the date decade completely wrong but mm-hmm. a bunch of people come over to a house party and they just keep making up reasons why they can't leave and then they find they really can't leave. Like they're walking into rooms and they can't get doors open. The like all of the help has just left because it's like an upper scale party. And these people just become trapped in this house without being able to explain why they can't leave for like weeks and months at a time. Hmm, that's interesting. Yeah, it, it feels very similar to this movie because they don't stop to explain how these people can't leave. You just know they can't. And they seem also confused about it. And it, it unspools in a similar manner where it, it works almost on pure allegory. But uh, I don't know enough about the politics of the time to really talk about what was going on in that film. I think you need a lot of footnotes to really understand it. It's kind of like when you're reading Shakespeare in middle school, like you have to have all those little tiny notes to explain what the fuck he was saying in regards to the 1600s. It's uh, it's interesting how like, you strip everything else away from Mother, and it also shows how horrible social anxiety can be occasionally. Just oh, yeah. People like coming into your house and just doing stuff and it just starts freaking you out more and more and more and more because it's all invasion of privacy. Oh, RoboCop, get out of here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a, that was all I could think during the entire first half of this movie was it feels like I'm watching a horror movie where the tension isn't in will somebody die or experience pain? But the tension is in, will things get more awkward and uncomfortable? <laughs> and that's horrifying in that context. It was just, I think it was the way that he kept in just like with her, the way he put her face in frame for everything. It just, you felt oh, yeah. everything that she felt like I, her acting was fantastic because it was all on her, like the emotions and everything. And it felt so tense. There were so many times that I just, and I'm not, I'm not, a, I don't have social anxiety and I still just, it would just make me like cringe watching these people just take full advantage of his hospitality and how uncomfortable she was with it. It was, oh, it was so, that was really well done. It really evoked the emotion I think he was going for. Yeah. See, it's interesting for me because typically when I watch movies, I'm hypersensitive to people being put into awkward situations. Mm-hmm. Like anytime like a three's company scenario happens where a character is supposed to be dating like two people at once and the other one finds out and there's a horrible, awkward moment. I, I can't stand watching that stuff. Like it just, I feel embarrassed for the characters and it, it's tough for me to get through a lot of films because there's always those little dramatic beats. 
this movie is that cranked to 11. And yet, for some reason, instead of causing me to, like, panic, it was it, it triggered, like, a, a sense in my mind that this was a comedy. So, for me, this is, like, the darkest, strangest, absurdest comedy I've ever sat through. So, to me, it was almost enjoyable watching uh, Jennifer Lawrence basically just be pushed out of her comfort zone to extreme degrees for more and more and more of this movie. It It's interesting you said that, too. I think that a lot of those awkward situations, because I feel the same way. I start to feel embarrassed for the character and I don't want to watch it. That's why there's certain episodes of like the office that I can't watch oh, yeah. um, or certain moments in it. And I think the reason is, is that it puts it's false awkwardness. It's, it's, it's forced for the sake of the story. And so it's hard to watch, not just because it's embarrassing for the character, but also it's almost like, why are they doing this? Like, this is, this is one of those situations where somebody would just, you know, fucking say, Hey, by the way, this never would. This never would have happened. And the fact that they won't do that is against human nature. And that's, in my opinion, that's what makes it awkward. Sometimes is that which that's what makes it embarrassing. It's like this isn't how humans act. But maybe what makes this more palatable is the sense that this is really how humans act. Is that she kind of goes along with it. She's kind of awkward. She's a little nervous about it. But she just lets it happen until it gets way too much, and then she just explodes. So. I just want to know how uncomfortable did you make that couple beside oh, you? When you were just laughing was, your ass off. This I wouldn't say it was like bust out loud gut laughing, but there were moments in the movie where I was the only person in the theater who was laughing along, and they probably just assumed I was very, very drunk. But there's moments in there that are to me hilarious. Uh, uh, for example, like uh, the counter scene, like. <laughs> Jennifer Lawrence getting more and more upset that people are on the unbraced counter, just jumping up and down on it. You know it's going to break, and she's so mad, and she can't convince them to stop it. The people are dumb enough to keep jumping on it. Or there's a guy who walks up and says, can I use your phone? And she just looks so confused, and she goes, sure. And then he immediately walks off in the opposite direction of the phone, and she's trying to flag him down. He just pretends she doesn't exist. Uh, or my personal favorite, she's in the bathroom. Like, I don't even know what she's doing at the moment. I think like washing her hands. Maybe she's dumping some of that yellow liquid. And a guy walks in and surprises her. And instead of leaving, he just opens the door and goes, whoops, just exploring. <laughs> and he's just yes. in <laughs> I just love that moment so much. And I, I think there's, there's little pieces in there, I think, that are designed to let you know this is maybe a very dark humor at work. Like, the casting of Kristen Wiig is kind of a giveaway. Obviously, she's not playing it for a comedy, and she's had some more serious roles more recently. But that kind of casting seems to hint that there there's something a little bit weird going on. It's not pure drama. Or even the exclamation point after Mother in the title just seems like one of those little flourishes designed as a kind of comedy beat in my mind. Oh, yeah. Well, Aronofsky, uh, the thing that I was fascinated by was Aronofsky uses kind of the tone of an absurdist farce in the first half to then let that tone, like it's ridiculous some of the stuff that's happening. Yeah. And just more and more people coming in until people are just painting her house and just... <laughs> the counter scene it just has like comedy repetition to it until things start going to hell literally in the in the third act and very true by the time we hit the third act i no longer will defend defend this movie as a comedy <laughs> well it's all like how like really good horror even though i don't necessarily call the movie a horror film or anything but it's aaron obviously still designs it like good horror just use comedy set up to then build and then do a switcheroo, completely alter the tone of what you're doing and just slap people in the face with it. I don't know. It's, it's hard for me to see that as a comedy in any way. Like, I, <laughs> I realize I'm probably in the minority on that one. But <laughs> yeah, you really are. <laughs> I can see absurdist. It's definitely like it's got that absurdist nature. So maybe the, that kind of slight dark comedy. But 
dark comedy, there's usually a little bit of a wink at the at the camera with it to to some degree. And instead of giving that to the audience, he he takes it even further. So maybe what it is, it's he kind of goes through all the genres. Maybe it's just it's always absurdist. The whole thing's absurdist, but he does absurdist comedy, and then it kind of becomes absurdist, a kind of a thriller, and then a, and then a bit of a horror towards the end. And you know, I, I don't know, but. It, well, that's a good point. It does move through a lot of the cycles. I mean, there, there's strange tonal moments where all of a sudden, like, uh, they just decide it's going to be a film centered on the romance between him and her, where she accuses him of not being able to fuck her, and then they just have a sex scene, then she wakes up, and she knows she's pregnant. And it's such a weird pause in the film, because it it goes from <laughs> anger to erotica to, like, something almost upbeat for about two whole minutes. Yeah, that's true. It's, you start to think, oh, maybe this isn't going to be as bad. And then you're like, no, it's going to be worse. Oh, there's no chance. Gonna, yeah. <laughs> there's, you know, now there's have, a baby in the mix. It's going to get even worse. You have one second of hope that it's going to be okay. The whole, the tensest scene uh, for me, I think, is also when she doesn't want to give up her baby to him. Mm-hmm. And they're like, they, and they're, they're hiding in that room and in his office. And he's just staring at her while she's getting tired. Yeah. Like, he just yeah. sits down and waits. He, he, yeah. Know, like a fucking, the Komodo dragon after biting its prey. That's the only thing where he, where he really comes across as being everything else. I feel like he comes across as being unaware. Like he's just, this is my audience. I have to give them what they want. They're my audience. I owe them. I owe my audience all of this. And this is the one place where he has a little bit of um, maybe just a, a little bit of evil intent. You can just you like he, he, he's going to do something that he knows is not right for his audience. Right. And it's, it's a fascinating turn too, because Essentially, we're watching, if you want to look at it in pure allegorical terms, it's the Bible. So it's Javier Bardem is God. And mm-hmm. to go the length of saying, what if God was kind of a jerk? To me, seems like a really bold choice, which I mean, shouldn't at this point in time. But it's also a movie you have to know is going to piss off a very large portion of your audience. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which I appreciate. I, I think there's a lot of filmmakers that play things fairly safe or due to studio systems, they don't have the authority to really dip into stuff they know is going to cause a reaction with the audience. And in this case, Aronofsky has got enough clout where he could just say, no, this is what I want to do. And he had to know the kind of trouble he would get in for this, considering how much uh, shit he got for his previous film, Noah. That was also a film I really enjoyed, but almost everyone's forgotten about it by now, it feels like. And that came out in 2014. It wasn't even that long ago. Yeah, it wasn't bad. It was actually, I, I thought it was pretty good too. And I think it was because he stayed away from a lot of the, um, he, he, he tried to make it about this guy, not about like God being this pow- all powerful thing. Yeah. But in his version of it, I mean, Noah makes some very human choices and it almost turns into like a, a strange, uh, not quite slasher at the end, but it has like that intent where Noah's going to murder members of his family. Right. I'd be very curious if uh, Aronofsky could ever get the funding to do like a third part in this strange Bible trilogy he's got going here. I have no idea what it'd be, but I would. Jesus. He does Jesus. It's just Jesus. No, it's actually it's going to be the Batman movie. He's going to take over that. And it's just it's <laughs> going it's to be his third in the b- biblical trilogy. His version of the Dark Knight Rises is actually just Jesus. Exactly. Does that make Bane the devil? Because I would love it if Satan had a funny voice. <laughs> oh, I'm actually considering this now. Think about it. It sits pretty well, right? I'm sure Hardy would sign up. No, I want to see oh, the devil in a luchador Christ mask. is your ally. <laughs> but I was just amazed to see a movie where, like, metaphor or not, the story of Jesus is framed in a way where God is kind of the villain, which has always been my takeaway from that story. <laughs> yeah. 
I mean, as someone not raised in a very biblical house, most of these stories are very confusing to me. You know, you, you learn them as you get older and you hear stuff about like, okay, and then God told us uh, one dude, you have to kill your son. Like, that doesn't sound like a good thing for a deity to ask. And yet people that were raised on the Bible, like they accept the fact, no, 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 it was a test and God's not really a bad guy. But as someone just hearing that story in like their teens for the first time, you go, no, it sounds really bad, though. You can see the PR not being great for this, right? <laughs> yeah, it's one of those things like if, if like people who play games, like, you know, people who, who you know, you're going to test other people. Yeah, that makes you a shitty person. Sorry, if that's if that's what you do is you test other people. You're kind of a shit person. So, the, but I mean, the biblical, I mean, allegories are so is so thick with this, too, that it, it really is something that like it's hard not to keep seeing every time you watch it. Just it, everything that they do from the beginning, the baby being, you know. Uh, Jesus and, and God basically being like, oh, well, you know what? It all burned down. I'm going to start over again. <laughs> mulligan. Or, just a mulligan yeah. on this earth. Yeah. What did you guys catch on to the fact that this was essentially just going to be a play-by-play of various Bible highlights? Was there like any one moment like when you saw the frog jumping around the kitchen or like when the pipes burst where you're like, oh, that's the flood or okay, now I get what's happening. I see what they're doing. I don't think I actually went until I, until I finished the movie and, and, then, and then reflected back on the whole thing. I don't think there was a moment... Maybe when they pass the baby is maybe when I, but I, I don't know that I necessarily uh, ever reached that point until after the whole movie. Gotcha. Yeah. I unfortunately had it spoiled before seeing it. Uh, so I had the unique experience of watching the whole movie thinking, oh, I see what you did there. <laughs> yeah. Watching it today was actually really uh, was was keeping that in mind. It was amazing how much stuff I picked up on that. I, I don't know that I saw the first time. It's a lot of fun on a rewatch. Like, uh. The first time I watched it, I saw Ed Harris like down puking in the sink. And then you watch it again and you kind of think like, oh, this is like, I think he has like an incision or something on his side. Like that's the rib removal scene right yeah. before Eve yep. shows up, which is exactly. something you wouldn't necessarily get the first time around. Right. Not at all. You would never even, never even notice that, that that was, you're like, what was that? But it would never put it together until you started thinking about it in, the, in a religious sense. Mm-hmm. It's incredible to me how um, when you really just sit down and watch it. It's so no bullshit literal. <laughs> like Aronofsky's just angry and being super literal the entire time. I mean, it still finds room to be, you know, an enigma you can pull different allegories from, but you can also just watch it completely straight for what it is, and it's just like kind of in your face with what it's doing. And it's, I appreciate that because of. The way Aronofsky put it together for to be an allegory while also being really in your face about it creates like this standalone story where you can watch it as just this horrible event that's happening that's outside of what it's actually literally about. Yeah, I, I think that's the thing is I think his he's so obvious with the biblical details that he puts in there that like that can't be the <laughs> the basic symbolism behind it because it's not symbolism it's fucking in your face it's, yeah. it's so obvious <laughs> like, so i mean the only, and, and so I, I really do think that that like there is a lot more to it there's a lot more just depth to it that this is just the the first layer um and then then as you can keep going layer after layer until you know and, and until you get to stuff that maybe he never even intended yeah and and one thing that's been on my mind very recently just due to David Lynch apparently being everywhere again. Lynch, anytime he does an interview, people will ask him, hey, what's the meaning of this or this or this? And he is stone-faced. Like, he refuses to give you anything. It'll probably make you more confused if you ask that question. And in his mind, you should never try and give someone an interpretation of the movie. That should be on the individual to think of for themselves. So it was fascinating to me when Aronofsky came out and said, oh, no, no, oh, this was just about the environment. 
Because immediately made me think like, no, that can't be right. I don't trust that. Just because <laughs> the author said it doesn't mean it's right. Yeah. Which is a strange text. I always get frustrated when David Lynch doesn't say what his interpretation is. But when Aronofsky says what his is, it's like, no, I'm going to disregard that. It's impressive that uh, this is one of the few cases where the director comes out and just spells out every single thing the film's about. <laughs> Yet it <laughs> remains a mystery in some respects. Which is yeah, pretty amazing that he can describe it in detail and you can still say, I still don't know what the fuck this is. So that it's <laughs> still, we're still calling it a thing even after that. And <laughs> I, I suspect the studio must have had something to do with it. I feel like the studio must have maybe asked him to do that because the reception, because they marketed it so terribly. They marketed yeah. it like it was a traditional horror yeah. and it would have just been better saying, you know, you're not going to know what you just watched, but come watch it. And and they would have done, they had a better uh, expectations for, for the audience. But I feel like they kind of pushed him to do that. And he was like, all right, I'll just be explicit then. Just, I just imagine how hard it would have been for that marketing team to be told, like, we need you to do basically something totally different from every other marketing campaign out there right now. Because everyone has like their templates when they're doing a trailer. You know, you have your action beats, you do a little bit of plot, and then you have like 30 TV trailers that have the same couple of snippets over and over. This one would almost need like a blank screen for a minute with like scary noises and basically just Aronofsky saying, uh, better show up to find out. <laughs> and there's like, I don't know if that would ever sell a movie now nowadays. You, you maybe could get away with it like 30 years ago, but now it just probably make people angry and they just dismiss it. But even the marketing campaign that we did get was confusing. Uh, on the DVD menu itself, they used the promotional poster that they did an homage to Rosemary's Baby, mm -hmm. which is such a strange. Maybe that was an inspiration for him when he was writing this, but it, 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 the, I don't the, know. the connections are so tenuous to Rosemary's Baby. It's just such a weird choice for them to make that direct of a comparison in one of their main posters. I was so I still think by he's that. ripping off Evangelion. <laughs> <laughs> it's Aronofsky, so it's possible. <laughs> I, I'm not going to argue. Sure, maybe. <laughs> it makes just as much sense as Rosemary's Baby, I guess. Why not? Uh, one thing I can say that's positive about the marketing, though, uh, the poster, the, like the illustrated version of Jennifer Lawrence holding her heart out. Oh, yeah. Great, great poster. And not enough posters, in my opinion, are illustrated. I, I'm tired of just the, the plain photoshops or where you have like a face with text superimposed over it. Posters are all pretty samey these days, it feels like. So that was just a wonderful thing to get that arresting poster um i'm blanking out on the name but the artist who did that poster just had an incredible year because he also did the poster for the shape of water mm. so that guy had like two gigantic famous posters in the same year which is amazing because nobody gets to draw posters anymore and he gets to do two of them it's a shame that only one of those won an oscar so <laughs> we probably will not get more posters just pumped out but god i would have loved to see mother win an oscar Mother for most terrifying whatchamacallit. What would that acceptance speech have been? He, he just goes up oh there and he God. screams for 30 seconds. <laughs> the only person to ever rightfully thank God. <laughs> right. uh, and, and, you know, even with the explanations, by the way, that there's still no explanation for what the yellow powder is that she puts into her drink. Right. That was one of those things. Like, was it some sort of weird laudanum deal? I, but it, it, has, it has no, yeah, it has no relevance to biblical. It has nothing to the environment, like all these other things that it, like all the other symbolism involved. I have, I still, I have not been able to figure out what that is, what that's supposed to be. Yeah, or uh, uh, Adam's lighter. We get a couple of shots of that, and eventually, uh, Jennifer Lawrence knocks it off a counter, and for the rest of the movie, he has to walk around like looking for matches because he doesn't have his lighter anymore. There's, there's a close-up shot on it, and there's some sort of rune 
I, I think on Wikipedia they they list what they think that rune is and some sort of symbol indicating like man and nature's togetherness. Mm. But it's also Wikipedia, so I don't know how true that is or if they just kind of guessed. So there, I feel like there's little symbols and little things like the yellow concoction potion hidden throughout the movie that complicate the idea that it's simply about this or that. Yeah. Maybe he just decided to throw everything in there. He's just all maybe. <laughs> maybe there's other actual religion um, that he pulled symbolism from as well that that are like just less less familiar or less familiar for for me. Maybe that you know maybe something from um, other world religions too. That's yeah. definitely possible. I was so focused on all the biblical stuff, I didn't pay attention to what else he could have put in there. There could have been a bunch of Buddhist stuff that I never would have even noticed. Yeah, I mean the idea of reincarnation. I mean coming back uh, three times. Yeah. So well, that's true, because in, in the Bible, someone correct me if I'm totally stupid on this subject, but after Revelations, it's like, what, everyone either gets raptured or sent to hell? Is there a mulligan on the earth after that? <sighs> there is not. Okay. That's what I thought. So a it mulligan doesn't necessarily on the jive. Earth. Eh, strike this one. We'll try again. Uh, like, the movie doesn't support that. Well, in the movie, they get a redo. In, in the Bible, the idea is that you got what you paid for. This is the end. Everyone enjoy this forever. <laughs> and I want to know what happened to everybody that ended up, uh, like, in the fire. Like uh, they all died, and then do they come back too, or is there going to be a brand new cast? Like if, if when they do the sequel, you know, Mother Two, um, <laughs> Mom Harder, it just has two exclamation points. Um, when they, when they when they do that, uh, you know, it's, when, when instead of Kristen Wiig, it's Bill Hader as the publicist. You know, it's just it's a it's a, everyone's a little different, but <laughs> I don't know. Uh, Brian Gleason is now Brendan Gleason for some reason. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this this is a. This is one of those movies that I, I definitely feel everybody should watch, and <laughs> maybe just the once, just yeah, at least once, you know, just just to watch it, just to be like, what do you think now? <laughs> maybe if you pull enough people, it'd be like, uh, you know, if you have if a number of monkeys typing, if a number of typewriters, they'll figure out what the fuck mother's about. <laughs> and and if you hate humanity, it's a good movie to watch. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, it's a misanthrope's dream. Like God, just we're just horrible. We all need to get off of Jennifer Lawrence's table. <laughs> that's true. They should have listened. And I guess that's one thing we haven't quite, we kind of danced around the idea. But if you scrap away all of the meaning from the film, you can watch this movie purely as a roller coaster. And I think you'd be emotionally exhausted at the end of it. Like if you're not trying to sit there and think about biblical illusions, you just watch it for that county fair atmosphere thrill ride. It's still a rousing success because man, that third act, is just a gut punch. Oh yeah, it's so intense you can't stop watching it. Like you, even if you've seen it before, you still like I. You need to watch the whole battle scene with. Uh, I mean, yeah, it's so so amazing how how well he crammed all of this into this house too. Yeah, it's it, the filming style, like that kind of gorilla thing. It's in your face. There's bits moving everywhere. People flying around, debris, smoke. You're not quite sure what's happening, but none of it's good. That that was a panic attack to me. It's just sitting there. It's like, oh god, I don't want to be in this house anymore. <laughs> It just keeps going and going and going. And to and his credit, I mean, typically if a movie's pretty bad, you'll see one or two people walk out at different points. I, I did not see anyone leave Mother. People complained the whole time, but they did not leave. <laughs> so I, I feel like part of that atmosphere was enough to just glue them to seats. One, they probably wanted to figure out what was happening and they thought maybe the end would tell them. But two, once the ride starts, you don't want to get off. That's true. 
And it, it was one of those, they really wanted to figure out see if they maybe had some closure. People wanted closure with the movie. They didn't. It wasn't. It wasn't so bad that they they were like ready to to give up uh, because they they really needed to know. And then they walked away without, without knowing, anyways. <laughs> um, I heard somewhere that he built the house for this for the movie, like built because he, he designed it so that um, like this open floor plan where each the each room had like an entry and an exit, so you could essentially walk through the whole house in a circle. Without uh-huh. going in, like, because because if you notice, like, um, when he when he's like when she's walking through the house, she's never goes turns around and goes back out the same entrance. She goes in right. one door and then always goes out another. So like they all connect, which is pretty interesting. And then also she never leaves the house. Everyone else leaves the house at some point. She never steps foot. Uh, I don't think even onto the porch. I think she is always inside that house. Yeah, I think you're right. There's there's one moment where she says she's going outside, but I, I think she bumps into somebody when she's going to the door and they push her back in. So she never makes it past the threshold. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I just assume like doing those kind of filming scenarios would just be so much easier if you build it on a set. Because filming inside a real house always seems like a pain in the butt, you know, just because it's, it's cramped enough where how do you fit the boom mics in? How do you get the camera in position? Well, I don't know if he actually built like that actual, but I, but I, I but right, he, right. That he, but that he didn't go to a, like sometimes they'll go to an actual house to try to film because they like the design, but that he actually, he designed the entire interior for the movie. If uh, it wasn't for all the people breaking sinks, I would like to live there. Oh, and also house. that that horrible like rotting floorboard situation. Also not prim, primo, but you know the rest seemed pretty nice. Yeah, rotting yeah, floorboard weird, was odd. Weird bloody <laughs> vagina floorboard. Uh, why, why is it a vagina? At one point it looked like one uh, when they're they're all worshiping it, and it was it was either vagina or, or the Virgin Mary. Like you could see, like it was supposed to be like either figure of a. It could be both, I think. Yeah, in my mind it was kind of like a stigmata type thing, you know. Yeah. But I, I don't know enough about religion to know if that makes any sense being where it was placed. That's well, a me, blessing and a curse to not know anything about the Bible. Just you can assume, oh, that's probably a Bible thing. I just don't know what. I don't I know the hits, like the the kids Bob hits. does Bible. Right, the greatest hits. <laughs> the cliff notes. Yeah, you know, oh the flood. Yeah, I get that one. Okay. Uh Cain and Abel, yeah, sure, it makes sense. I thought it was more like the uh, people when people have like a piece of toast and they're like, oh, I see the face of Jesus on my toast. That's what I kind of <laughs> saw that was. It was like, like this, this blood had become this symbol to people that they were, you know, there was almost like a Rorschach to, a test where you, you can kind of yeah. see different, different things in it. Yeah. Uh, the face of Bardem. I'd worship it. Yeah. <laughs> Boy, that should have been how they actually approached the villain for Pirates 5. <laughs> It's just it's just God, and he's he's writes really popular poetry, and it's right. just as believable as this ghost. <laughs> God's a pirate in this scenario. Yeah, why not? That would make me religious. Also, God is a terrible <laughs> poet. I'm sorry. <laughs> you know that actually that that's the funny that is the funniest part of this movie is that uh, anyone would really react that positively to poetry. Right, where they'd all have your photo. I yeah. boy, I was taught by the poet laureate of Wisconsin in in college. And that guy had to teach college poetry, so he was not well off. Like, <laughs> I being love the number that one idea. poet in your state does not make you a rich man. Uh, his <laughs> grant for being the poet laureate for Wisconsin was five thousand dollars. But then Scott Walker killed that grant uh, several years ago, so he was one of the last people to receive it, I believe. <laughs> I like that title, the poet laureate of Wisconsin. Oh, That's I want thing. that. I think many states had that. You'd be yeah. uh, uh, granted it by the powers that be. I think the governor assigned it. There was one per year, and they were ambassadors for poetry throughout the state. They would go to libraries. They would do public readings. Uh, they would just basically go around and be like, here's some poems I like. Here's some I wrote. Maybe you should write a poem. Creative writing's fun. And hopefully that would inspire the arts in, in other people. 
right. that was the idea. And then, uh, uh, not to get too political here, but Scott Walker <laughs> hates the arts in college, so he, he murdered it in its crib. Oh, yeah. Scott Walker, he's a piece of shit anyway. So. Yes, he is. <laughs> he's the real Javier Bardem. <laughs> That's right. Uh, his hair is not as good. <laughs> But this is one thing that weirds me out, too. So, again, I don't know everything about the Bible, so I only caught, like, the greatest hits, the easy identifiable spots. But you still have to wonder, why did he pick those specific moments? Was it just to let you in on the idea that, yeah, we're clearly trying to do the Bible? Or did those have some sort of meaning to him specifically where it's like, okay, I need to have Cain and Abel in here to illustrate a larger point about the subject outside of the allegory? Well, no, what it was was essentially uh, the way that I saw it, uh, and especially having just watched it, it's really kind of fresh in my mind. But, you know, if, if you look at it from purely religious uh, the uh, allegory there, you've got, you know, God and Mother Earth, who is supposed to be Jennifer Lawrence, essentially are together. And God's, you know, says, allows any, you know, people into this house, Adam and Eve come to his house. He allows them anywhere in the house except my, except the forbidden area. They go to the forbidden area, they, you know, and they, they essentially, they break the apple. Instead of eating the apple, they break the apple. Um, and then, of course, that's when things start to go bad. They start to they have sex in the house and then Cain and Abel show up. And, the, and so like they're showing kind of the fall of mankind. It's showing the entire fall of humanity. Mm-hmm. And so then it just you know deteriorates beyond that and then turns into this thing where their story uh, starts off with like a supportive where everybody's trying to be supportive and then turns into this absolute chaos. And that, that's why I think that, that he takes those steps because he's trying to show the, just the fall of mankind in the eyes of organized religion. Gotcha. I still think everything would have been tied together a little bit more neatly if they had a pet dog named Rex to represent the dinosaurs. Yes. <laughs> Just in the background for a few shots. Like, he, he would have gone away for a while. Like, he would have left the house after the first scene. Right. With no explanation, he just would have walked away. I don't know. At one point when they pulled back, I think I saw the trees kind of shake, and um, and there was a glass of water that just had a little bit of eccentric <laughs> circles in it, so... That's that's all we needed. I should have been paying better attention. <laughs> those cameos, man. Those little Easter eggs hit you every time. That's right. <laughs> uh, one one sad little tidbit about the film that I'm not even sure a lot of people are aware of, but uh, Johan Johansson actually worked on a score for this movie, but uh, Aronofsky and him got together and decided the film would be better off without a traditional score, and they scrapped it. And considering Johansson's recent you know uh, death, it's, it's such a shame. One of his last works isn't out there. We'll never probably never get to hear it. That's interesting. Um, I can't imagine this movie with a score. Yeah, like, like right. a, nor- a normal score. Like I, I don't know that it would work. So it might have been the right choice, anyways. I think it was the right choice. It's just a bummer because it's one of those curiosities. You're always going to wonder. Oh, it's it's one of the last scores for a very promising new composer, and well, it's gone, which is a right. shame. But I, I do think it was the right choice for the movie. It's amazing how tense they can make that without having the traditional orchestra behind it escalating things. Mm-hmm. There, there's some clever sound design, but it, it's not like they really need to have the, the timpani and all that to really drive your heartbeat. I'm just amazed by the humility of that, of being able to say, yeah, all my hard work probably was for nothing. <laughs> I think it depends on if you get paid. Yeah, I'm sure you still got a check. So, yeah, then you're like, oh, I did this. I got paid for it. I'll do whatever the fuck you want. <laughs> and the strange thing, you'd almost think in that situation, they just use his music for the credits. And they don't. They use they use a a, a cover song. <laughs> oh yeah, and then complete silence. I think. I believe you're right. Yeah, it's Scribbling. just empty after that. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. That's it. Like as the credits, you can kind of see like pen strokes coming down. You hear that quill noise. Right. Which is just such an interesting, fascinating choice for the end credits. I feel like a lot of directors get that far along. They're like, oh, thank God, I can just go home now. Put on <laughs> some like classic '90s rap. 
<laughs> I do miss that time period where every movie had its own dedicated rap song they could put Me over the right. Can you imagine Vanilla Ice singing a mother song? Oh my god, what would that even be? Or MC Hammer, they get him to... <laughs> I was joking with Jamie about this before, but I really think it would just be like someone doing like a, a, a dubstep cover of Mother by Pink Floyd. Right. <laughs> I want to, by the way, commend you guys that nobody so far has tried to go the whole hacky way of talking about Danzig. <laughs> because I feel like when this movie came out, that's what every like any every shitty open mic comedian was making a joke about it, and anyone on TV was talking about it. Like that's where everybody was saying, and it was so annoying because there's you know and just oh, right. so yeah. so obvious. Yeah, exactly. I mean, Mike, I feel like you're our Danzig expert, so I would have to leave that to you. <laughs> It's obvious. <laughs> if it wasn't obvious, I would have made the joke like last year. We laugh now. It's probably on our Twitter somewhere. There's probably a bunch of dancing Twitter jokes for friends <laughs> deleting right now. <laughs> to cover our tracks. Internet, please don't research us. We say dumb things and forget about them all the time. Sometimes we think we're clever. It's a mistake. It always is. Here's a good question, by the way. Who the fuck? Uh, who, who the fuck does Mother Earth call for nine one one? Like, I want to know who that was. <laughs> right. <laughs> That's one of the fascinating bits about this, because it's all modernized. Like, characters have cell phones, and they're making calls, and they're talking about things like wills. So it's all been updated, and they apparently have an outside world they're coming in from. Yeah. Just the universe. <laughs> like, she was calling Jupiter to come over and kick everyone's yeah, ass. Yeah, exactly. Like, yeah, who, who was she calling? That's a, like, outside of the, like, in his symbolism, and he's writing this with the symbolism, wouldn't 9-11 wouldn't work, and 9 wouldn't work, or would, like, the phone would be dead, like, that makes sense, but the fact that somebody answered and is trying to, like, take the information, well, where, where are you? <laughs> what well, would have happened, like, okay. if, if they got the information, would, like, have Zeus shown up and kick God's ass? <laughs> God, can you... Can you God imagine? fight, everyone! God fight! <laughs> can you imagine you're a beat cop, and you have to take a domestic call on God? No, it would have been Carl Winslow. <laughs> <laughs> he just would have shown up with some snowballs all over his chest. Yeah, this this is essentially just a lost Dirk Gently story. What we're describing: <laughs> Mother Nature calls nine one one, and Dirk gets the case. Or the quintessence from like the comic shows up, and it's just like <laughs> Ganthet and Shazam. They just <laughs> dressed dressed in blue as beat cops, of course. <laughs> Come on, Yahweh! We know you don't want to do this. <laughs> I like the idea of Javier Bardem being being taken down on his front lawn in a tank top so much. <laughs> yeah, right. You better get my bail, bitch. I feel like someone should make a parody sequel to Mother now. I'm I'm just waiting for like 30 years where they need new IPs to recycle. So like Mother gets a remake. Right. This is the route they go. Like it's got to be something different than last time. Yeah. Law and order. Mother. Still spelled the same way. Same sound effect too, and still the same cast. Or or Disney buys Paramount, so then they release it as a Disney film. Ah, uh, it's tied, only a matter of time. Tied, tied into the Marvel universe somehow. The yellow stuff was Venom. That she was thinking <laughs> it was Venom, and uh, it all comes together. See, I always thought they were trying to do the the prequel route with Life, and it turns out Mother was the real start of them. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Should have known, Disney, you clever bastards. Disney, if you'd like to buy this podcast, I can assure you the price is low. <laughs> we accept Venmo, cash, uh, checks scribbled out quickly in parking lots after you crush our bikes. Anything's fine. That was oddly specific. Uh, I'm sorry, I have to make a blank check reference every couple of years or else uh, I get beaten up by my childhood friends. Why was there never a sequel to Blank Check? 
I mean, yeah. he already had unlimited funds in the first movie. I don't know what you do if you have unlimited funds a second time. Unlimited power. Unlimited power. Soul stones? He gets soul stones? <laughs> <laughs> I don't want that kid having snapping powers. That's all I'm saying. Snapping powers. Uh, Mr. McIntosh does sound like a celestial supervillain. <laughs> does have a good ring to it, yeah. Are there any other points people want to touch on, or should we go into closing thoughts? Uh, I'm good. It's a strange film because there's just a lot of what and not necessarily a lot of this is that. Right. So, and I don't want to be the YouTube guy who's like, the 10 things you missed in Mother, you idiot. Let me explain. Jennifer Lawrence's neck. I'm to this day still trying to figure out how to describe why I love it so much. Right. Like if someone put a gun to my head, tell me why you love Mother. I don't know. I just I just do. It's brilliant. <laughs> It's it's got a great cast. I mean, hell, it's got Ed Harris. It's got RoboCop and Catwoman in a relationship, and they fuck up a house by being jerks. That's amazing by itself. Uh, the weird mystery aspect of it, where it's not really a mystery, but you don't really know what's going on. Why are you calling on. Ed Harris RoboCop? I <laughs> long thing I've been doing it for years. Okay, just confusing <laughs> it because he looks like Peter Weller now, but like, yes, <laughs> just okay, okay. He, actually, he does look specifically like Peter Weller's face stretched over. Yes. <laughs> like I never, yeah, I never yeah. realized that. Like I made yeah. that joke once because I just accidentally called him the wrong thing, and I've just stood by forever. Like I'm just going to bend the cosmos to <laughs> oh, okay. my yeah. will. Like eventually, they're going to become one. <laughs> You're creating your own Mandela effect. <laughs> well, it's just like if I say it enough times, people are going to believe me, and they're not going to question me saying something dumb. I'm just doubling down. <laughs> I'm the time sure- we try. Guys, if you go back and listen to Bob episodes, I'm pretty sure I've done that like three or four different episodes. <laughs> so at the time, Mike and I tried to convince the internet that Neil Gaiman created Candyman. <laughs> oh, we came so close. <laughs> All you have to do is just get him on Twitter and have him repeat a couple of those tweets. I think you're good. I mean, all I can say as far as why I love the movie is it's the closest I've come in recent years to recreating the experience I had watching Stanley Kubrick's movies for the first time. Yeah. That feeling of just being sat down and having your ass kicked by a director. <laughs> like Twin Peaks The Return is the only thing that even comes close to that that I can think of. Of just being a putty in an artist's hands. That's how I think I felt when I watched Natural Born Killers in the theaters for the first time. Um, was just like, I, this is a ride, and I love where it's going, even if I don't get everything until I've seen it a hundred times. I was uh, lucky enough to see 2001 in theaters a couple weeks ago, and yeah, same kind of thing. It's just exciting to get to see it in the theater. Like, there's no distractions, so you're just forced to sit and endure whatever's going to be doled out to you. And it's such a treat when it's actually rewarding. It's not just something thrown up on the screen, but something lovingly crafted. It's really rare when a film comes uh, comes along that truly actually affects your being as you walk away from it. And uh, yeah, mother fits that bill. It, it absolutely does for me. And in, in the sense that it just, it really did resonate in, in such a, uh, in such a way as someone who is a creative person who focuses all of his energy into creating works for other people and has gone through muses like they're disposable at times in my life. Um, the the five the lines that she says at the end, which is what really kind of tied this in for me, was when she says, uh, "You never loved me. You just loved how much I loved you, and then yeah. I gave you everything, and you gave it all away." Like those that right there, that's that sums up that entire movie to me, and that's why I absolutely love this movie because I'm like that's 
that's kind of my it's kind of been my life and i can really appreciate what he was doing with it i would love it if hallmark turned that into a breakup card like <laughs> you, you could just get that and put it in a mailbox and then walk out of the state and never come back <laughs> that'd be great so i i think uh, I don't have anything else to say about Mother other than if you folks at home somehow listen to all of this and you haven't seen Mother, <laughs> that was a dumb choice. Uh, but I would recommend going to see it. Spoilers, Mother dies at the end. Uh, I would recommend going to see it now. It'll still affect you, even if you do know the twists and the turns and the allegories. It's just, in my mind, incredible, amazing work that you should see once. Maybe you won't feel like seeing it a second time, but you'll probably be happy you saw it that one time. This is how I'm also going to talk to my children if I ever have them. I'm just going to do like, you're probably going to appreciate having done the laundry every once in a while in your life. <laughs> when you're 30 years old, you're going to enjoy knowing how to separate the dark and lights so they don't bleed into each other. Can we scratch that one? That one sounds oddly like racist. Shut up, Cody. I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't think that did at all. I, I don't think. And the podcast, going Separating Cody. colors. I'm like, no, no, I don't like it anymore. Cody, get all off the, the podcast. It's not braced. <laughs> It never was, and no one ever fixes it, Mike. Anyways, uh, that's been Box Office Pulp. Thank you very much for joining us. Uh, you can find more of Box Office Pulp if you so choose. We're on Twitter. We're on Stitcher. We're on uh, Blogger. Just type in Box Office Pulp, and you'll find us. Adam, where's the best place to find you? You can find me on Twitter, at Avitable. That's A-V-I table. And, of course, my podcast, Dating Kind of Sucks, is available on iTunes and Stitcher and everywhere else except Spotify. Those motherfuckers still trying to get on, get on there. Uh, we're, we're getting close. Godspeed, yeah. sir. That's the dream. And uh, we have a, actually a really fun Facebook group. Um, if you just It's just facebook.com slash group slash DKS podcast uh, where people talk about sex and relationships and, and uh, dating, and it's a lot of fun. So people can feel free to join that as well. All right. Well... That's a wrap, everybody. Get the hell out of here. And like that, he's gone. This is Box Office Pulp Guy, and this has been a Pulp Podcast production. Now please, 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 put a gun in my mouth and pull the trigger and say goodnight. And now, on with the show. There are a lot of issues that plague the <laughs> Greetings and salutations, kiddos. It's me, your old goblin in crime, Roderick Kingsley, here with a special message for you, my adoring public. You may have noticed lately in my many, many appearances that I've had a bit of a spring in my pointy-booted step. No, boys and girls, the secret to my success is no wonder drug or mere miracle diet, but an elixir of the spirit. And, like a Halloween-themed Jehovah's Witness, I'm here to spread the good news like a bombardment of pumpkin bombs. The good news of graphic novelism. But, Uncle Hobgoblin, you ask, what is a graphic novelism? Don't interrupt me, you little shit! But yes, the tenets of graphic novelism are quite simple. A love for the comic book form in all of its forms. A rejection of the complacency that keeps it from reaching further heights. And... Most importantly, a refusal to fall into the dark pool of negativity that has strangled the life out of this culture for too long. Since becoming a devout graphic novelist, I've rebuilt my goblin game from the ground up, soaring high above my fears and insecurities, as though they were the skyline of New York City. And all you have to do to walk this path is look deep within yourself. 
and send your credit card number care of Ronnie the OG Hobby at gobmail.com. Or if you want to be a total Norman about it, just listen to the Graphic Novelism Podcast, where Alex Cook, James Lewis, and Mike Na- Na- Napier preach their love for the medium and warn against those that may do it harm. Remember, ladies and gents, if you want to be the hobgoblin of whatever it is that you do, listen to Graphic Novelism. Subscribe to it on iTunes and The Stitcher. Leave a rating and a comment. Visit graphicnovelism.com. And for God's sake, kill Spider-Man! Another episode. That was just a little taste of graphic novelism. <laughs>